If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello, everybody. Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 59 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week, we talk with Nicola Musgrove. Now, Nicola is an experienced early years practitioner. She's a former further education college tutor and also mom to two children with autism. Here's our conversation. Hello, Nicola. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andy. How are you? Yeah, all right. Not too bad at all, thanks. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going to talk about all sorts of different things, aren't we? Can you can we start off by um, for you giving us a bit of an introduction? Would that be okay? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, well, my name's Nicola Musgrove, and I was an early years practitioner once upon a time. Um, that was the, my first job that I had uh, when I first started working. Um, I worked in a private day nursery and she was start children's centre. And I did that for eight years. So I worked with a lot of children and their families, um, particularly with a lot of other services as well when I worked for Shua Start. Um, and during that time, I went and did um, my BA in early childhood studies because um, it was just at the time when the earliest professional status was was being introduced. Um, and then I had my first child and did a complete career change and decided instead of the early years that I was going to work with the uh, older children. Um, So I went to teach in a further education college um, and taught childcare and early years to predominantly 16 to 18 year olds, but some adult learners as well. Um, And I've been doing that for the last nine years. And I've just recently left that job because I am hoping to do a PhD next year in um, and focus on autism in mainstream education settings. That's going to be my research paper. So I've got a lot of lot of different experience and a lot of different hats that I wear in terms of early years, teaching early years, but working with um, sort of teenagers and, and adults. Yeah, yeah. And it must be quite interesting that making that switch between working with very young children to then working with young adults must have been really interesting. I, I guess when you first stand in front of um, a group of young adults rather than young children that you that you realize quite quickly how much you know you know to me that, that the experience of being there within the classroom of working with young children the experience creeps up on you doesn't it you know it, you kind of you, you realize suddenly that you know a lot don't you that um do you know do you, do you know what I mean I guess there must have been that moment when you stood in front of a, a group of young adults rather than young children and thought crikey where did that come from? I know, I know that and that and this and that. Did you have, I guess you had that experience, yeah? When I first sort of stood up there and I thought, oh my gosh, what if they asked me something? <laughs> and they did ask, obviously they did ask questions and I was like, oh yeah, I know that. And I can, they always really liked that because I was um, sort of the newest member of staff. I'd just come out of practice so I could give very specific, practical, hands-on examples of this is what's going on in settings at the moment. This is mm. how you would deal with things. This is what's um, kind of the contemporary issues and the hot topics within early years at the time. Um, and they always really liked 
um, a scenario or a case study or a practical example that they could get on board with, I think that made their learning much more real and much more tangible when they could actually hear a specific anecdote or story from working in an earlier setting about some of the things the children might have said or done or what my day used to look like they could see it then in sort of real practice as opposed to just in that classroom based learning but then there was a couple of times where I looked down the register and read a name of a child that I'd looked after in nursery who was now sitting in my classroom (laughs) as a 16 year old and that felt a bit strange yes yes definitely Definitely. Um, and, and of course, as part of the, the podcast chat that we're having today, um, we're going to talk about something very much close to your heart, aren't we? We're going to talk about autistic spectrum disorder. Now, can you tell us why that is close to your heart? Um, I think it was close to my heart originally because um, when I did used to work in, in practice, um, we had... I think it was sort of a time when we had a lot of children going through that process and early identification. And we felt that as practitioners um, through our, obviously our observation and our records and our work with health visitors and speech and language. And obviously being based in a Shua Start Centre, I had access to a lot of um, those professionals in multi-agency working. Um, But then I had my own children So I have two children. I have a girl and a boy. Um, I have a little boy who's 10, who's not so little anymore, and a little girl who's six. And both of those have been diagnosed with ASD. Um, Both actually quite similar, but massively different as well. Um, So when they were, well, when my little boy was three, he wasn't obviously meeting his milestones, which I was more than aware of with my background. Um, and when he went to access his funded sessions, he went to a childminder and she picked up on it straight away as well. Um, but obviously from having those initial um, concerns and conversations, he didn't get diagnosed until t- about three months after his fifth birthday. So most of his earlier education were was to do with assessments, appointments to get him to the point of diagnosis um, and quite similar with my little girl as well actually sort of when she got to about three we again had the concerns conversations about her development and she was diagnosed in reception as well so she was diagnosed about three months before her fifth birthday actually during one of the lockdowns mm-hmm. so that was okay. quite a, that was yeah. quite a challenging time as well and I was going to say and, that's an additional challenge there isn't there Yeah, because obviously it was very hard to get the evidence that she needed, the observations that were needed. Um, And this is why I'm really passionate as well about championing early as practitioners, because it was definitely the expertise, the knowledge and um, the know-how of how to refer and how to meet these you know, filling these really complicated forms to get a diagnosis that my children sort of sail through the process really of these are the concerns this is the knowledge we have these are the observations we've got our tracking that when they actually went to be diagnosed both educational psychologists commented how sort of watertight and watertight and meaningful and purposeful these observations were and I think that's a real testament to the early years practitioners of how good they are how knowledgeable they are how much they know their children and child development that they were able to highlight and pick up on the challenges the strengths that when it came to diagnosis time we had all this evidence built up 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. And and so so you've you've already got, of course, that that you've already got that earlier background, and then alongside that, you have your own children, and presumably that must have been quite a learning experience as well as in addition, mustn't it? I, I guess in the in the you know sort of finding out more and more about your own children and their needs must have been quite a learning experience I, I guess can you can you tell us a little bit about about what you what you saw in your own children in terms of perhaps certain behaviors or certain things that they would do or perhaps wouldn't do can you give us a, a little bit of an idea about that um yeah it was definitely very related to their speech for both my children um okay. they present very differently um and they are, but they do have a lot of similarities as well. But the first thing was definitely um, delayed speech. Mm-hmm. And then obviously all the things that are linked to that speech delay, because if you have a speech delay, how do you then build relationships with others? Um, yeah. My little boy is very, very tall um, and he could function without having to speak. So a lot of our work with speech therapists was around trying to give him an opportunity to communicate. So we'd withhold things or put things in awkward spaces that he would have to go and ask. But because he was so tall, he could reach them. <laughs> and um, and um, I know as practitioners as well, we used to get told all the time, from the speech and language or from occupational therapists that our continuous provision was fantastic, but because everything was accessible, the children didn't have a reason to communicate. Okay. Which which was really interesting because I used to think, oh, look at that area that I've set up, how fantastic it's looking. And the speech and language therapist would come and take pieces out and say, (laughs) withhold some of the things because otherwise there's no reason to communicate and I think with my nursery practitioner head on I was setting up home like a bit of a nursery and so Mm. my son just used to access whatever he wanted and they were sort of saying just try and hold things back or give him a reason to come and ask for something yes yeah and and so and presumably it's it's interesting what you're saying that your children are similar yet very different can can you give us an example of of how you kind of have both you know similar but different what how do you mean what do you mean by that they're both very sensory so they both have quite a lot of sensory needs but they're both very undersensitive which means that they absolutely seek out sensory experiences as opposed to becoming overwhelmed so they're both like loud music they both like sort of noisy toys they like flashing lights and fireworks and all these things that normally we would think of a stereotypical autistic child as maybe not liking um but my little girl's speech is much more advanced than my son's and again there's a whole debate and discussion around girls and boys presenting differently and little girls being harder to diagnose because of masking so my little girl's speech is much more um sort of echolalia she will parrot these sort of taught phrases that she knows and so you assume that she actually probably knows more than she does because she knows how to present and how to portray herself. Um, so she, so her language was delayed, but more advanced than her brother's. Um, yes. She's a little bit more... Um, my little boy is very, very laid back. 
and um he he we doesn't he doesn't sort of need a structure or a set routine he's quite malleable he's quite happy to go with the flow whereas my little girl does seem to find it harder um for example when she's off for half term it, we always get a little bit of pushback on that first monday back because she's had a week off mm-hmm. yes yeah so and that's it that's interesting isn't it because that partly fits partly doesn't fit with that again that stereotypical view of, of what you would expect from from a child on the autistic spe- spectrum and that kind of partly sort of wanting the routine partly not not needing the routine does that make sense that they're kind of they're not all it's not always exactly the same for every child is it I, and I think there is a danger sometimes that we slip slip into that 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 sort of ste- that idea of of, of well, what is a stereotypical child on the spectrum does that make sense? I think sometimes I think sometimes we do. I think um, that we that we kind of almost have a, a sort of one size fits all kind of idea. Well, well, this child is is on the autistic spectrum, and therefore they need this and this. When, as you were just saying, actually, you've got two children there who are both on the autistic spectrum, but actually are very different within that as well. They are completely different, and I think that again goes back to when you're looking at those things that you're looking out for one of the mm. things that we were straight away asked about with my little boy was things like is he bothered by loud noises is he bothered by the fact that there's a change in routine and we had to say well no he's not really and mm. and he still isn't and um because we are quite a um sort of a musical family and there's guitars in the house and things actually for his 10th birthday we took him to Liverpool to the Cavern Club and that's where he spent his 10th birthday. And if you say that and relay that story to somebody else they, and they know he's autistic, they look at you like you've you've gone a bit mad. Like, why would why would you do that? And I think because we need to get away from that stereotypical idea of things being overwhelmed or too stimulating when actually that's what he needs. He seeks out yes. sensory stimulation. Yes. Yeah. Um can I, can we go back a step as well? And um, I just wanted to to just sort of um, ask you if it, if it's okay, just to give us a bit of an overview of of what we mean by autistic autistic spectrum disorder. In that there's a real range there, isn't there? You know, there's a huge range. Um, even as we were just saying, in terms of your children, there's quite a range. But actually, a child who's on the autistic spectrum disorder could could be anywhere within that spectrum you want, could you just give us an idea of actually what that spectrum might be like um it might look like yeah obviously it's very easy to sort of go on and find definitions of what autistic spectrum disorder is some mm. people call it autistic spectrum condition so you might see it written as asc as well as yeah. asd um and it's still in the obviously dsm5 it's still diagnosed as as kind of a mental health problem which we are trying to get away from and look at it as a more positive neurodiversity movement and look at it in those terms um but generally you are looking for sort of this spectrum that causes people to have difficulties with their communication skills their social interactions um their sensory processing, which I would say is a really key thing, um, repetitive behaviours, um, routines, transitions, difficulty with changes, all that kind of thing is generally yeah. what, what you're looking for. Um, historically, it used to be sort of 
uh, referred to as the triad of impairment. And it used to be difficulties with communication, interaction, uh, repetitive behaviours or imagination. Um, And again, I would totally flip that on its head by saying, actually, my little girl has a fantastic imagination. So she does sort of break that mould as well because her imagination skills are fantastic, whereas my little boy's never been interested in imaginative play, really. Um, So that's, again, something that they present very differently with. Um, But we tend to think of it now as much more wider and broader than just those kind of three areas. Um, so we might look at having a high focused interest or hobby. I think most people would associate having some knowledge of autism with having um, a high focus on something that they are particularly interested in. They can really hyper focus on it. Um, and obviously meltdowns and shutdowns, which are quite um, which are quite common as well. But again, they're very different. So we might have a meltdown, which looks like a tantrum. So it can present in um, negative behaviour, screaming, shouting, kicking. But on the other side, you can also go into shutdown, which is where you just totally disengage um, and are silent and will just sit in the corner. And I've tend to find in my career, especially teaching the older students, that shutdowns were much more common than the meltdowns. They they would experience something that they, they found challenging and just totally disengage and switch off. And that can be hard for a teacher, and especially because it presents as sort of maybe rude behaviour or not listening. And actually, they've just gone into a bit of shutdown and they just need time to process what's yeah, happening. Yes, yeah. Isn't that fascinating, isn't it? The the, the differences there, you know, that you, that that actually we tend to talk about, as, as you say, one umbrella kind of statement being on this on the autistic spectrum, but that actually you've got such a, a wide variety there that must make it, I would I would think, very difficult to then to to then get that diagnosis, and then to, for for many people, in that you've got that variety there, you've got that those sort of sticking points almost in terms of what seems to fit, what doesn't seem to fit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does, and especially because if you're looking for something that you've maybe seen in terms of, well, the, the, I'm, look, I'm looking out for the meltdowns, but they haven't got them, but are they having shutdowns instead? So mm. it is very hard to actually get all the evidence needed and that knowledge needed for if you are going to go for a a diagnosis because it can present in so many different ways. Mm. And um, there's sort of a lot of talk at the moment about the autistic spectrum not being as linear as maybe what people used to say. We used to sort of have um, very autistic and maybe less autistic or high-functioning and Asperger's and those terms are not really used anymore because again, you can't really just be at one end or the other. Actually, it's very spiky. And some even say sort of it's more spherical than a linear shape. And mm. that you're looking at kind of plotting like a graph almost as if um, we've got huge sensory challenges and huge sensory processing issues. Um, but actually, um, they don't have problems with routine and transitions or we've got a real um, speech delay but imagination skills are really good um, you know we're having problems with executive functioning and managing workload 
um, but fine with the actual cognitive and learning development needs as well. And that's very hard to for people to get their head around, I think, how you can have a child or a student that I, particularly those that I've worked with, who are more than capable of getting a grade A, but can't do the executive functioning of actually putting it in order and managing workload or managing deadlines. Yes. Yeah. This is really interesting, Nicola. Thank you so much for talking this through with us. It's, it's really, really interesting. Um, of course, you've got a kind of a foot in, in almost sort of two camps in a way, in that you are, and you've got that, that earliest background. You're somebody who has worked supporting teachers and practitioners in terms of working within earlier settings and in classrooms. And then alongside that, of course, you've got that real specific interest in, in autism and the autistic spectrum. Um, if, if we were to put the two together, okay, the two sides of it, in terms of your experiences, would you be able to give some I want to say tips, but tips seems it seems a bit too shallow, really, for what we're talking about here. But can you can you give advice, really, to to people who are there within the classroom at the moment, working with us within a school or within a setting, and they've got children who they perhaps know are on the autistic spectrum, and they're trying to support those children? Um, what what would be the key things that you would recommend I know as we've just talked about there's a huge variety here isn't there so it's it's not a one-size-fits-all or one thing will work for every child but can you give an idea of the of certain things that you would be asking or 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 discussing if you were to support a teacher or practitioner in that situation I think the first thing to do as a practitioner as a teacher or whoever it might be is to get the parents on board as well and have those what might be a difficult discussion because again children will present very differently at home as they do in school that's true for all children um but even more so with um children on the spectrum because obviously home might be their safe space and it might be because they're surrounded by people who really know them so they are able to engage a bit more um than than if they are at school. So I think the first thing to do is to obviously get those parents on board as well, because we all know that the parents are the child's first educators, primary carers, they know the child better than everyone. Um, and you need their input as well. And obviously that can throw up challenges as well if you're if you're approaching that with a parent who maybe has no idea or no inkling or no concerns. Um, but again, that's about working together in that collaborative way um, and sort of saying, how do they behave at home? How do they present at home? What kind of things do you do at home? But just get to know that child. And I know that's what all the practitioners are out there doing as well. And that's the benefits of the key person approach as well. Um, and really get to sort of profile them and see where, and I know everybody does that with baselining and tracking and assessments, but just be thinking about, those little things that would build up that bigger picture of that child. How are they at transitioning? How are they at routines? How are they at sensory things? So it could be a thing around textures with food as well. That's a big one usually and a big one that appears, I think, more maybe more so at nursery than at home because they might be exposed to food that they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to or introduced to at home. 
and actually profile it and see where we've got these this spiky profile or these challenges that you're facing. And then you can do sort of your tailor-made support to what that child might need. Fantastic. So you've got that, that understanding the children through also understanding uh, what the parents are seeing, what they're understanding as well. Uh, and of course, you gain that potentially in different ways. So schools and settings quite often do home visits, don't they? You know, that sort of on entry uh, or as part of their transition process, having that um, having that understanding of what the child's like at home is quite an interesting thing to consider because we might, as you say, we might only be seeing one side of what this child is is exhibiting really in terms of in terms of um perhaps what we think of as autistic spectrum um kind of kind of traits in a way i suppose um okay so you mentioned sensory the, the child's sensory needs could you could you go into a bit of detail around that if 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 we've got a child who who has got those needs and is seeking out sensory experiences and and you were then supporting a child or supporting the setting in meeting the needs of that child. What sorts of things should they be thinking about? I think it's a, again about knowing the children and really working out if they're undersensitive or oversensitive to, to stimulus. Um, so when I was a practitioner, I probably was under the assumption that every child on the spectrum became overwhelmed and overstimulated. Um, and so things were sort of stripped back. With my own children, it's very different. They actively seek out sensory experiences. So my son attends a special school, so it's very different in in how they um, how they approach it and their sort of um, how they set up for it. I suppose you know more staff and ratios and things like that. But one of the things they do with him straight away is to the first thing he does when he gets there is to do a sensory circuit that's set up for him and that just regulates him for the rest of the day then and I think that's quite a um I know it's it's um quite difficult to say in terms of what you can do in terms of staffing and resources and things mm -hmm. that you might have at school but if you've got a child who needs to do that to regulate then generally they might be more able to cope throughout the rest of the day at school if they've had those sensory needs met most people are aware of sort of the main key five senses but there's also vestibular which is your balance um proprioception which is how your body feels and your body awareness and interoception which is how children are um responding and processing their internal needs which is you know, you might have a, a child who's desperately thirsty, but they're not recognising that sensation as thirst or hunger. So it's very difficult to meet those needs if the child's not aware themselves. Um, and I think it's just having awareness of things like that. I don't think I ever encountered that or thought about that as a practitioner because we didn't really know about that. Um, yes, yeah. And so as a as a teacher as well in a in obviously further education college, I had a student who like to walk and pace around so I'd set a task he'd get up and do a lap <laughs> and um, that was him processing it and that's how he would process the information and then he would sit down and do a fantastic piece of work but he had to go through that process before he could sit and focus and do do the actual task that had been set 
yes yeah and and that that's quite hard to I, I, it's not hard to necessarily put in place but it's important I think for us as, as adults working with young children in in different settings that we see them hopefully notice certain patterns like that that they need a certain thing to do at that point in the day to get around certain activities or to have different sensory experiences before they then settle and presumably to understand that actually without that that child might not then regulate in terms of their behavior does that does that make sense yeah yeah and um i think it's about having that awareness and space and time to provide that sensory diet we talk about a sensory diet quite a lot in the autism world mm. of um of just meeting those sensory needs because that then tends to mean that self-regulation is so much easier and it's yes. looking out for those signs and making that as part of the planning of the day um so if you know that a child's um when they come in their behaviour is quite challenging, quite negative. It might be because they've had a long car journey and they've been sat in the same position for a while. So they need to just do something to make sure their proprioception sensors are regulated. And it might just be a walk around somewhere or a go on a balance beam. Different levels are usually quite uh, um, important. My son has little almost stepping stones to walk around and mm -hmm. that just keeps him regulated. Um, it might be any kind of, a lot of children will rock or flap. Um, and instead of sort of trying to stop that stimming and that regulation, it's how do we do it safely and incorporate it in a way in, in our day to help everything sort of keep regulated and keep on a, a balanced level for the child. Yes. Yeah. Can I ask as well, going back to um, your own children, does that, does that mean that as part of your day, if you're going out on a morning, do you have certain routines that you do that is like that? Um, not particularly, because we generally, I think we are geared up for it, that we probably are not even aware of things that, you know, what okay. we do. So, for example, my um, my son's, um, one of his favourite things to do in the morning is to sit um, near the radiator snuggled under a blanket because he wants to seek the warmth. Mm. Um and again, that sometimes that can present quite difficult because actually he can't feel the heat in other in ways that other people can. So he wouldn't necessarily know if he was getting too hot or anything either. So that can be hard to monitor. But that's how he'd start his day. Um, if we're going out for the day, he's pretty chilled out. He's pretty laid back. He'd, he'd sort of go off and we'd go wherever we were going. Um, he tends to have things with him to keep him regulated. So he has some little toys that he carries um that we take with us they will keep him regulated throughout the day um we might have shown youtube's really good for showing you them the place that you're going to go and what it might look like mm. um we tend to take things with us that he can chew on because he's quite he quite likes to sort of mouth objects so we have like yeah. um, a little chew thing that he takes with him as well um and it's just making sure those needs have been met that he's had something to eat that he's had something to drink all those things that you would do anyway um mm. but they need to be sort of we need to think about them because obviously um he's 10 a typical 10 year old child would be able to sort of manage some of these things themselves and he can't always so it's yeah. making sure those things are in place. 
Yes, yeah. You you mentioned as well that idea of kind of knowing where he's going next or knowing what's happening next. One of the things that I think typically we often will have within an early years classroom is that idea of visual timetable. And it's something that often people will put in place. And I, I think it's it's a it's a good thing to have in place anyway. And it also generally meets the needs of, of a range of different of, of different children there, I think, as well. Um, and so, you know, for young children, if you're talking about three or four or five year old children, they won't necessarily understand the structure of the day, even though you've actually have had that structure in place for quite a while. They won't necessarily know whether they've had their snack yet. You know, often you'll get, you know, you'll be asked at 11 o'clock, have, have we had lunch yet? Have we had dinner yet? You know, all of those sorts of things, that those timings within the day, they'll forget whether certain things have happened or haven't happened. But certainly from a uh, from thinking particularly about children with uh, on that autistic spectrum, we we really do need to think about the, that visual timetable as well, don't we? Definitely. And I think, like you say, it's beneficial for all children, particularly in the early years. And you would even have things labelled up that just makes life so much easier for all the children. So you generally have a photograph of the Lego bricks on the Lego box so they know where to put things. That's all really mm. beneficial as well. Anything visual. Autistic children are very sensory. So the more sort of sensory input you can give them is always going to be helpful. Um, my little girl uses her now and next board within her classroom. So she has, um, and every time she's completed something, it goes in her little envelope that says finished. So she knows that it's done for the day. Um, we used to use a lot of um, traffic light systems as well. And actually that's something that I used to use in my practice within um, teaching early years. If you're, you know, if there's a green light, that means everybody's working and every, we're, um, we're all sort of focusing on one topic. But then for some children or some young adults, that change to stopping that activity if they don't think they've quite finished or can lead to some panic and anxiety. So I used to use the orange one, the orange symbol to sort of say, you've got about 10 more minutes on this and then yeah. we'll be closing to a stop and obviously when we put the red sign on that means it's it's stopped completely doesn't mean you can't come back to it or take it home um, but anything visual just reinforces yes so so kind of moving towards a gradual stop and giving the children an idea of when that stop is coming will help many children and it often helps very young children anyway doesn't it you know three or four year old children will find stopping when they're engaged in something quite difficult and change can be quite stressful but again I think particularly around uh, with children with autism that actually you're giving that extra bit of, of notice really about when that change is happening what that change is going to look like what's coming next all of that sort of information um, this is great, fantastic Nicola thank you so much for, for talking us through this it's, it's, it is really interesting really really interesting Thank you for having me. It's um, definitely what I'm passionate about and I hope that it is helpful for people. I'm aware some people will um, know a lot already or some practitioners won't or mm -hmm. I know that everybody sort of comes with a different level of experience and, um, and knowledge and depending on how what children you're working with, your yes. ideas will be totally different and um, what you'll see will be totally different and yes. no two autistic children or people are the same. 
Yes. And it's it's also important to say that we have high standards for ourselves, don't we, as early as teachers and practitioners. But I think when working with children who are on that autistic spectrum, nobody gets it right all of the time. No, we don't get it we, because actually you're you're it's a process of finding out about the child of what works and what doesn't work, isn't it? Of, and that some certain things you'll put in place will work straight away and you think, right, that's great, we must keep that. And then other things you will try, you think, crikey, we're not doing that again. You know, that that clearly hasn't helped the situation. And it's, we all want the best for our children. And But at the same time, not everything we try straight away is going to work and that's that's okay you know that's part of the process of meeting the needs of the child is to try different things out really and to see what works and to gradually get to know if you like it to, to to put together a kind of a toolkit for that child of what will work for this child and it won't necessarily be the same as what will work or has worked for another child who is autistic maybe last year or whenever that might be it will have to be something very specific for this child, which is a, it's a huge challenge, isn't it? But I think that's that is the way to look at it. Is that we've we've got to it's we've got to try things and we've got to to see what works for this child. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And that's one of the things sometimes when we've discussed things for my own children, it's been, have we tried this, have we tried this? And you think Yes, but it doesn't suit their profile. So that's why it doesn't work for them. And it might have worked for another child that was in that that year group or, or something a different a different time. But for these it doesn't. It has to be quite personal and quite individual and, and tailored and unique, which I know is very difficult in terms of time and resources and staffing that, that is going on within early years and classrooms. Um so I am very aware of and very yeah. conscious of that, particularly from when I worked in early years, that we'd have all loved to have a very bespoke individual um, sort of curriculum or for each individual child. But obviously the space and time constraints are just so overwhelming that it can be very difficult. But if you've just got that awareness of it and you are reflecting on it, which I'm sure every practitioner does anyway, when you think about yeah. your own practice and your own and the children that you're working with, and it's not very, and it's not dissimilar to the principles within the EYFS anyway, because you are looking at the child as an individual. You've got your unique child, and then you're thinking about the people around them and that environment as well. And that's what it's about for me. It's my children are unique. They have this, this, um, as they are on the autistic spectrum, but the people around them and the environment around them can just be tailored a little bit in order to support them. Yes. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. It really does. Um, I, it was really interesting, actually, a, a little while ago, I talked to Kerry Murphy, who, of course, has written written a book all about supporting children with special educational needs and disabilities within the early years. And and if people are out there and they're listening to this episode and they've not read Kerry's book, um, I definitely recommend it. And, and have you read it? Have, have you got? A I have. I've got Kerry's yeah. book. Yes, it's on my bookshelf. Yeah. And I did listen to the podcast <laughs> and um um follow her on twitter and everything um yeah and she said some she had some fantastic insights on on the podcast yes i thought she was really interesting and she said um, there were a couple of things that i i really took away from it that first of all she said that she whilst she completely understands that idea that that often we talk about every teacher or practitioner being 
a teacher of children with special educational needs and disabilities, that actually that's what everybody wants. At the same time, that isn't something you can just say and then it happens. It, it actually needs to have a level of training with it and a level of understanding with it. You can't just say and expect everybody to suddenly have that understanding. And I, th I and I think she's absolutely right. I, I do think we have such high expectations of our, our earliest teams to know this depth. You know, what, we, what we've talked about this morning, particularly what you've talked about this morning, is a real depth of understanding. And most of us, myself included, haven't got that depth that you've got, you know, through your experiences with your own children and, and the research that you've done and the background that you have. Um, and yet, actually, it is, you know, in order to meet the needs of these children, that is the depth that we really need to have, isn't it, really? Um, interestingly, I think sometimes that lack of understanding does lead to so certain things that, that, that again, Kerry mentioned. So she mentioned one, one thing, which was that um, there is sometimes a kind of a lack of positivity around, around autism that, is, that becomes very apparent. So I think the example that she gave was that, you know, if a child, if a child is lining something up, okay, and that they do that repetitively, and we don't notice anything else in terms of other traits or behaviours, we, we focus in on that repetitive nature of play and we celebrate it. We talk about the, the, the schematic play that we can see there. We talk about how isn't that great that they are really engaged in learning in that particular way. But if a child repeats things and we feel they're on the autistic spectrum, that's seen as a negative. Is that and and is that something that you, that that kind of resonated with you when you kind of because you were saying you heard the podcast? Is that something that resonated with you? Yeah, it definitely did because obviously we look at those things as stereotypical behaviours that highlight needing a diagnosis, mm. and even the language around autism calling it you know some people have real problem with it being called autistic spectrum disorder because disorder mm -hmm. would imply um sort of a medical condition the fact that it's still in the dsm-5 and still needs a diagnosis is all kind of sort of negativity around it um yeah. but like we said with um a child who is engrossed in something, who likes lining things up, who sees things differently, these are all linked to, you know, your STEM subjects, or these could be early coding things. And actually, yes. this is a child and this is how they learn through the through their individual schemas that they might need to do to repeat. And I suppose that comes along the timeline as well of when you're looking at what age should a child be diagnosed or what age do you start picking um, things yes. up. I, I did a, a webinar last week and one of the questions was um, my child likes lining things up and bringing the same things to me would that be a, a sign and I thought well it, my answer was it would depend on the age of the child anyway because that's how children learn through play they yes. are building on that learning they are building on that interest and actually it's such a positive thing how, with how they use that learning I suppose the um the sort of things around language and positivity, um again you just need to have that understanding of autism isn't necessarily linked to a learning disability, and yes. learning disabilities and learning difficulties are very different. Um, so your learning disability generally means you're looking at that lower IQ, 
of sort of less than 70 and that there may be cognitive development delay, that there may be issues with um, executive functioning and managing those daily expectations, where a learning difficulty might be something like um, dyslexia or something. So it doesn't affect the overall cognitive ability. It just affects how you see the, the letters yeah. on the page or words. And autism could fit into either of them because some children will have cognitive developmental delay with autism and others won't. They will have autism. And I think sometimes I've, and I'm not meaning to say this um, to be disrespectful or rude in any way, sometimes people you can sort of say, oh, they're just artistic. They haven't yeah. got lots of additional needs. They just see the world differently. And yeah. actually what they are seeing is that really high levels of engagement in what they're focused on. And that is such, um, that is such a unique, positive thing to celebrate. And with my children, it's generally things like remembering um, music or lyrics or it was very strange to to <laughs> to be a parent and a practitioner of when my little boy was four before he could say mummy and daddy he could sing lyrics to a David Bowie song that and that just totally blew our mind and blew everything I'd ever known out of the water in yeah. terms of you know development and speech development particularly or he you know before he sort of did um counting and rhymes he could say he could read the gruffalo book and yeah. it totally flips that development on its head but it's absolutely fantastic and we embrace it for for what it is yes it's seeing those positives isn't it that i that i would think if you haven't got that breadth of experience that you have that you wouldn't necessarily see those positives potentially you might just see negatives as part of you know a, a, a child with autism and and not sort of seeing the kind of all of those things that actually that child could do or can do or is is interested in um and if, the other thing alongside it and, and i know you were keen to talk about this is that, that that actually sometimes autistic spectrum disorder or children with autism what we're talking about can sometimes be seen as very narrow you know that that kind of a, a narrowing of of kind of our idea of, of actually well what is that then yeah it can be and I think it can be very um very stereotypical and quite linear and quite sort of um just very very narrow in terms of what people are aware of both as practitioners and educators but that wider society as well um yes. and that's always something that I try to um to speak about in things that I'm doing or that I want to do in the future um to sort of say we might recognize these overwhelming sort of principles about it being um social interaction and social communication um but are we aware of things like do we know what executive functioning means are we aware of how memory works and the fact that generally our memory works by sensory input first then short term then long term so when you've got a child pacing around that's how they're embedding things into their sensory memory and then it will get yeah. processed to short term and long term so they want that aspect they might look like they're not paying attention because they're fiddling with a fidget toy but that's how they are processing it and linking it to their sensory memory and that all helps with recall and retention and, and therefore learning. Um, that's a massive sort of point that I think people do need to know 
and become aware of. It's not that people aren't listening or not processing or not paying attention. They're just doing it in a very different way according to their learning profile. There's lots of other things as well that we could um, talk about in terms of um, sort of behaviour and how the how we're presenting. And I think one point of a really important part of my son being in a special school is that behaviour is always viewed as a form of communication, which I think is a is a lovely point. Um, yeah. That actually they they just view it as the child is trying to tell them something. And how do we respond to it? We're not saying that it's positive behaviour all the time, but what are they trying to tell us? And if we can get to the root of it, we can probably respond and, and change that behaviour as well. Um, and the behaviour sort of things that I like to think of is there's um, a SEAT model of behaviour, so S-E-A-T, um, and that stands for sensory, escape, attention or tangible. Is it a sensory thing they need is it they need to escape from something is it they need some attention because obviously they they can't make those connections and, and get attention in a neurotypical way or is it something tangible actually something really physical that they need an item an object some food mm -hmm. and if we're aware of that then that will help sort of the classroom run better yeah. I believe yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's something that everybody could learn from, isn't it? Um, when they're working with young children, uh, when they're working with, with different people who, who are on that spectrum. I think that there's certainly a lot to think about there. Um, Nicola, thank you so much for joining us. It has been wonderful to talk to you and really interesting, fascinating to talk to you and, and to hear about that kind of different perspective that you have in terms of you know your own children at home and also your experience within the classroom and within earlier settings i think you have that really really particular perspective that i think is so fascinating to listen to so yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it and i do love listening to the early excellence podcast as well um i've listened to i think i've listened to all of them now so um it's really good to hear from a wide range of people and also then people who um, whose books are sitting on my shelves. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And we ought to say as well, Nicola, um, your husband, Tim, is uh, is running a marathon, isn't he? He is, yeah. He uh, he decided that he would um, enter the London Marathon next year um, and run for the National Autistic Society. They're celebrating their 60th year this year. Um, and... We spoke to a couple of people who who are volunteers for the National Autistic Society at their road show, which they do every year. And it was really poignant and really lovely to say that hopefully they won't be needed in 60 years because we will have a much more exclusive, uh, inclusive and welcoming, embracing society. Um, so he's going to run the London Marathon to help raise money and awareness for the National Autistic Society. Fantastic. What a fabulous cause. Absolutely. Um, what we'll do is we will put... Um, the fundraising site, uh, Tim's fundraising site, we'll put a link to it on the podcast so that people can go straight to it and make a donation. Uh, a very, very worthwhile course. Um, Nicola, thank you so much for joining us. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.
And that's about it for this week. Thank you very much to Nicola for joining us on the podcast this week. And also, of course, to you people for listening along too. Um, I hope you found our conversation interesting and also helpful as well. Um, Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye.